1: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have an artist for you today, the one and only Tim Grakowski from Chicago, now based in LA. This guy is super talented and super smart, and I love talking to him. So please stay tuned for that interview coming up to you very shortly. Before we get into it, I want to, of course, encourage you, as I always do, to go to notrealart.com and check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you there. It's all free-range, organic, sustainable produce there for you to consume and bolster your artistry and well-being for your arts career. So please go and check out all the good stuff. What do we got? Well, let me tell you. For starters, we've got our 2024 Grant for Artists, which is open now for submissions. Please go today to apply. It closes January 1st. And if you apply and you receive our grant, you'll get $2,000 and thousands more in PR and marketing support. So please go and apply for our 2024 Artist Grant today at notrealart.com. Also, while you're there, be sure to check out the exclusive video series, Remote, with the one and only Padir McCleary. And Badir is exploring the role of public art in this country and the world at large. He's all over the country, even in London. He's in D.C., he's in Philly, he's in Houston, he's in San Antonio, he's in L.A., he's everywhere. He's really, as only Badir can do, really dropping knowledge and insight about the power and the role of public art in our lives. So please go check out Remote, available exclusively at notrealart.com. Last but not least, of course, please be sure to check out all the free educational videos we have for you at the Not Real Art School. It's free to sign up. It's free to watch the videos, everything from how to protect your IP to how to pitch your ideas in Hollywood to how to market and brand your name, your art, your artistry, and many other great topics. So please go check out the Not Real Art School. Okay, people, we're going to get into this interview with the one and only Tim Krakowski. I love talking to Tim, a fellow Midwesterner with ties and connections to our homeland of Chicago. I just so enjoyed connecting with Tim, who is now in LA. And uh, Tim came into our orbit a couple of years ago, I think because he applied for the grant. And then he reached out to me personally to say, hey, would love to be on the podcast. So that's always lovely when People reach out and say they want to come on, especially people like Tim, who is so talented, so smart and humble, very humble. Love talking to him. Tim Krakowski received a BS and a BFA from UW after attending the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and a very fancy school in Vienna, Austria, with a very fancy name that I cannot pronounce. so I'm not going to butcher it. Tim moved to L.A. and received an M.A. from the Southern California Institute of Architecture. Tim's education and early works are rooted in painting and drawing. His professional art practice uses paper as his primary material to create both small and large scale works, installations and sculpture. He also uses conceptual ideas to create several temporary public works, and many time-sensitive large-scale pieces. Tim considers his work as a kind of social anthropology as he excavates images, texts, and headlines from popular media. He takes these fragmented vignettes and layers them, slowly accumulating and building layers upon layers of information until a pattern-like composition is created. His works are beautiful. I love his work. you got to check it out. Like gathering data, he accumulates and layers this information into a new file system like music sampling and hip-hop thus presenting a new visual language, aligning the act of looking with that of reading. Currently, Tim has spent the last 18 months developing a new body of work based on primarily ideas the Cubists presented. Tim's new works allow the viewer to experience a 2D and the 3D simultaneously as a high-relief constructions rather than the ubiquitous micro to create larger high-relief collage constructions. Since moving his studio practice to L.A. full time in 2008, Tim has been exhibiting continuously and has produced several major gallery shows and museum exhibitions, both nationally and internationally. He has been accepted to several artists in residence programs, most recently during the pandemic, the International College uh, Street Art Residency in 2021, and has been awarded several art grants and awards throughout his career. His work has been featured in several printed catalogs, articles, interviews and online publications, including Artillery Magazine, Art News Plus Magazine, Art Limited and Art Voices Magazine, among others. His work is in the collection of many important private and corporate collections in the U.S. Wow, what a CV. Tim, thanks for coming on, man. I'm so grateful that you reached out, and I so enjoyed our chat. So, party people, let's get into this conversation I had with Tim. And you can hear for yourself what a smart, talented, and humble guy he is. So, without further ado, let's hear from the one and only Tim Gretkowski. Tim Gretkowski, welcome to Not Real Art.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Man, I'm really glad you're here. You know, it's not often we get emails. I mean, we get emails a lot, but it's not often. It's usually hate mail. We don't often get love mail. But you sent such a nice email a while back, you know, asking about the show and offering to come on. So... When I saw that, I'm always down to have willing participants on. Usually I have to grab our guests, you know, and just sort of hook them and drag them into the studio. But you came willingly this time. So I'm so grateful to have you on the show, man. You know, so you're in your studio in downtown L.A. Are you there most days, like nine to five? Like what's your approach to your practice and your schedule? Are you pretty rigorous?
0: Definitely rigorous. I mean, you can even say addicted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, know. right. Of course, it's, it's not a job. It's <laughs>
0: right, right. You know, you can't get enough of it, and you know, you always want to be here, which is a good thing. But it's, you know, it's it's never really work. It's more play, and you know, way to like exercise, if you will.
1: Right, right. So I guess you find yourself in the studio most days. Do you try to take weekends off? How do you manage quality of life? Because speaking for myself and so many artists I've met, right? I mean, it's hard when you're called to do something and you feel like, you know, like this is what i meant to do, it's hard to put the work down and walk away and achieve that sort of work-life balance, so to speak. How do you approach your quality of life and your health and your wellness? And how do you manage, you know, kind of our obsession, you know, and
0: passion for our work that's so hard to put down? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it's not easy. (laughs) And I think you learn as you go. The longer you're doing it, you just figure out, Ways to kind of, you know, manage your time better and get the things you probably know you need more of, and access it more on a schedule or a routine. Most creative people, you know, when they're starting out and they're in school, they are habitually working twenty four seven. You know, I mean, I, I used to be on a schedule, and it was absurd to think about it now, but you know, it drove me in ways that i benefit now on just how to really take the time and focus to make really good work but i used to work all night and it got so bad that rather than most people go home at 12 or 1 or 2 i used to stay up longer and like you know generate energy as i went on throughout the day and, and the night and the quieter it got and the less people that were there I felt more motivated and empowered. The funny part of this story, which I'm glad that's no longer how I work, but a friend of mine, too, he would leave relatively early, but he would get there like before anyone else in the morning. So we had this same kind of practice. We liked being there when no one else was there. But I would be going home when he would come in in the morning. And it was at that point I go, well, this is kind of absurd, <laughs> you know, and I start <laughs> yeah. to lose track of the days, but you know, I was very well productive and prolific in that. But, you know, as my career went on and evolved, you know, and we're no longer in that academic setting and, and other parts yeah. of reality come into play, you have to manage your time much more efficiently just to get through life. And so it's kind of at the stage right now where I lose track of time because I'm so hooked on making it and creating, it and the adrenaline's flowing, and you just you love that moment, and you really don't want it to stop. But I've learned now that after a certain time in the evening, let's let's say six or seven, I'll take a break, I'll walk the dog, and I'll try to shift gears, just so I won't run in to the wee hours of the morning, you know. And if I am working on a deadline, I'll kind of have a rule right now that you see 12 o'clock approaching, hits 12, stop, you know, and I, and I've been pretty good at, at that. And, you know, but that's only like when there's deadlines and you're, you've got a show coming up and you're, you're hustling to get everything perfect, you know, or what you think is perfect.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so fascinating and it sort of feels like, you know, no matter the profession you're in, right? Like you just learn how to work smarter, right? So over the course of your career or whatever, if you, at least if you're, you know, on some level self-critical or introspective or aware or whatever, you know, in terms of trying to be more efficient, trying to be more effective, trying to be, you know, more economical, even, you know, with time, money, whatever, you know, and presumably a professional, you know, gets better at their craft or their art or their science or whatever it is. Right. And so, yeah, I can see how over time you would continue to kind of hone and refine your practice so that, you know, you are able to be more effective, you know, in your work and be healthier. Right? Cause I mean, I think that's one of the other things too. We live in sort of this, well, we live in a culture that And I think it's changing a little bit, right? But I feel like, at least historically, we've lived in a culture where it was like the workaholic was celebrated, you know, work ethic. Yes, you want to go to, you know, you burn the midnight oil, you know, all that stuff. And I think now maybe we're starting to realize, oh, wait a minute, actually, that's maybe not a net positive. That might even be a net negative, if not a net neutral. So let's take care of ourselves. Let's get some sleep. Let's walk away and come back because, that's maybe when you're you get your inspiration it's like that problem you're trying to solve go for a run right like maybe it's going to kick something loose yeah
0: yeah you're absolutely right i mean that is the new paradigm the dynamic of that i think you know i i grew up in a culture and an environment where my grandfather's my father just they worked all the time and they instilled that ethic and that discipline in me, which is great and also very important in what I do. And so I always I was raised to work really hard and that's what I did. I, I put in the time and the effort. But you do slowly start to realize in your own mental health and the way you become more efficient and better in the studio and what we're talking about is that you need to take those breaks and that, that day off or days off or, you know, cut the day short just to walk away. And, you know, and and you're right. A lot of times that is where the ideas come from. You know, I, I have a different way of processing that moment altogether, but it is very helpful not to be, staring at something when nothing is happening. It's not efficient. So you have to walk away, you know, but that's a good thing.
1: You've hit on several things, not the least of which you sort of mentioned, you know, the example that your dad and your grandfather had set, you know, seeing them work and that work ethic. And I know the, you know, you and I have the Midwest in common. We're both sort of I think, born and raised in the uh, Chicagoland area, as we say. And the old saying about Chicago and Chicagoans, right, we work hard, we play hard. And, you know, and my dad was the same way. My, you know, I come from a blue collar working class family from, you know, Gary, Indiana, basically. And, you know, but seeing that work ethic. I mean, my first job was on a construction site when I was 12 or 13 years old, you know. So you bring that into, you know, our work, right, as adults now, whatever we do, because that's what Dad and Grandpa did.
0: Right, right. <laughs> like, it's it's very true, you know. It's part of our DNA, whether or not we want it to be there or not. And I mean, I embrace it, you know. And it, it shows up in great ways. And you encounter other people, and you just have a get it done mentality, and whatever it takes. And other people slow down or stop, and they they have a different kind of ethic about getting things done, which is all good, but, you know, I do kind of appreciate the fact that, you know, no matter what I encounter, I'm going to get it done. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Well, it, it seems like, and tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, but it seems as though, you know, early in an artist's career, whether it's painting or sculpture or writing or poetry or whatever it is, so much time and energy is spent finding one's voice, Right. And I guess until you find your voice, until you know your voice, like you know you found your voice, like this is it, this is my voice, it feels as though that so much of that work up front is obsessive because we're searching, right? We, we know we haven't found our voice yet. We got to find our voice, you know, and then we after, you know, maybe 10,000 hours or whatever it is, right? Maybe we find our voice, you know, eventually we find a voice hopefully. And then maybe that's at the point where we can say like, oh, okay, now I know what I'm trying to say. Now I know how I want to say it. I know what kind of story I want to tell and how I want to tell it. And so you can organize your workflow, organize your practice, organize your studio in a way that helps you tell those stories in a more efficient way. I don't know. I mean, does that resonate with you? Would you say that that was sort of, tell me, let's go way back and talk to me and share with me your journey in terms of finding your voice and the stories you wanted to tell.
0: You're right in the sense of the time, and it it takes considerable amount of time. And you're taking a chance. You know, There's a lot of people that don't find their voice. Or in finding a voice, there's multiple kinds of voices. There's a unique one, a visionary one, you know, there are derivative ones as well, you know. And so I think it helps, or at least in my price process, going through schools, many schools and different countries and exploring diversity in a sense about education or even people. The more exposure I had to that, the closer I got to that voice, or, or what I like to call is language, you know, and it, it's spoken language, but as a visual artist, it's a visual language. And you're talking about all these influences. The more you're surrounded by, the more you have to look at and consider and pick from, you know. A small pool, not as interesting or definitely not as diverse as a larger pool to pick from. You know, so I like throwing myself in those situations that were not common or known, a little foreign to me. And so I can learn and grow and shift and change. And I saw that pretty early on. And I just, you know, I embrace that to this day. You know, if there's a path to take or something I don't know anything about, well, that's exactly where I'm going to go. And I learned to accept and really kind of thrive on being uncomfortable. You know, and that's part of it. A lot of people won't choose to do something because they don't know anything about it or they're a little unsure or uncomfortable. And I rather just dive in and get there and learn something about myself and, and how I can maybe grow, you know, as a person and as an artist. And I think those two things are directly related as well, you know. And the idea, like combining these two things, how I got there and maybe what it is now. It's like you had mentioned before about people using 10,000 hours you know, as this thing, which I've always kind of been outspoken about, but I completely, I get it, but I don't use it as the same marker as most. I always believed and saw that. I mean, if you do the math, 10,000 hours is not a lot of time. It's really not very small, you know, and and when you look at it, you're still kind of an amateur. You're new to the game. You're maybe not as green as you were, but I mean, it's not a lot. And so I always say that 10,000 hours is for amateurs and it's just the beginning. And you've got to like multiply that by 10. If you're ever going to get to a level that it's in your personal interest to actually aspire to, you know, and that's always kind of, I think, from the beginning and learning how I evolved and change, hitting the ground running is just not what it's about all the way. It's just about picking up all these things, these valuable tools on which you can use that when you do find that language or your voice, you really know it quite well. And I think that makes for interesting work and interesting conversations, really. That's also what it's all about.
1: Right. Well, you know, you were you know, something you were referencing a minute ago, this idea of because you were talking about traveling and, you know, lots of different, I don't know, experiences and things, or at least, that, you know, uh, that's the word that came to my mind. The idea of experience, the idea that those miles, whether it's miles under our heels or hours in the studio, whatever it is, like, you know, having the experience, life experience, right? Traveling, seeing, tasting, smelling dancing, whatever it is, you know, to soak in life's dynamics and good, bad, and ugly and whatever. And, you know, you bring that to the studio, right. And that becomes the fodder or whatever, right. By which you pull your ideas from. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, right. Like I am probably going to find artists in their work more interesting if they've Done some travel, for example, right? I mean, life experiences really plays into the stories we tell. It seems
0: absolutely, you know, and fodder is a good word, but you know what? What fodder becomes in that process or those experiences is tools. You know, and having a toolbox filled with a variety of tools allows you to get a lot of things in unique ways or even better ways, and that's part of that, I think, process.
1: Well, speaking of tools, that's really interesting because, you know, I've said that a lot, you know, over the course of the years, too. It's like, you know, it can't hurt, right, to have as many tools in your toolbox as possible, right? The idea of my whole joke about, it's like, well, we're either, I feel like there's two kinds of people in the world, right? There's your uh, Swiss Army knives and your switchblades, And I know what I am. I'm a Swiss army knife, you know, but sometimes you really need a switchblade. (laughs) But, you know, this idea of tools in the toolbox, it should be a net positive. But it's interesting because the idea of the multidisciplinary artist, you know, you see that a lot. And I think that's maybe more prevalent now than it used to be, because maybe for years and years it was like we celebrated – switchblade right the you know i don't mean this in a pejorative sense but like the one trick pony it's like oh okay they paint you're a painter but do you think of yourself as a multidisciplinary artist or do you feel like you know how do you think of yourself are you a sculptor or are you a multidisciplinary artist i mean how do you think about the tools in your toolbox
0: the question i've always felt no res- disrespect to the question somewhat problematic and I use it kind of, well, I embrace it as my own, but Chris Burden was asked the same question once after a lecture. And he says, well, I'm not going to limit myself by saying I'm a sculptor or an installation artist. Like I'm an artist. I'm a creative person with, you know, the tools I have. And if I don't have those tools, I'm going to go out and find that tool and learn how to use it to, you know, kind of, add that to my tricks to make things. And I've always kind of felt that in whether it was that diverse background and, you know, even academically going to different schools and different disciplines that I kind of went after. I think those things just wind up being, it sounds like an umbrella statement, but it's not. I'm just a contemporary artist and a creative thinker which is the kind of caveat to that. And it's like, so you put any task in front of me and I'm going to approach it creatively, whether or not if, if I've done it before or not, and I'm going to come up with a solution. And because of my experiences and you know certain tools I have at my disposal, I'm going to figure out a unique way to give that back to the problem or the challenge at hand. And I kind of that's the clearest, well-rounded way that doesn't define me, but I define myself and explain what I do. And it's not broad or generic or just some big umbrella. It, It really allows me to tackle everything, anything really.
1: Yeah. I love that answer because, you know, I've thought that and said that myself in terms of, you know, this idea that, you know, the term artist is actually in my view an incredibly broad term and it, it should be you know i think versus being very narrow one dimensional conservative and you know and by the way this is why our name is not real art you know versus real art because right because it's like there are people out there that want to argue that no 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 this is real art that's not real art and you know you know listen i mean you know if you're talking art history i mean where do you fit in the Story of art history. Okay, that's one conversation. But the idea that somebody's going to limit an artist, a creative thinker to one medium or one dimension or one, you know, whatever feels incredibly simplistic and reductive and, you know, conservative, which artists at their core, in my experience, are natural born innovators. They're natural born provocateurs, you know, like, or they should be, right? You know, I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, in terms of the tools in your toolbox, you know, one of the things that struck me, uh, I want to ask you about is, you know, your time. Well, let me say this first. You know, when I look at your work, I sense and feel, you know, a real logic and a real architecture to it, you know, a real structure, you know, and I know you studied architecture and I wanted to ask about that because what I love about architecture is that it's art and science, right? And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are industrial designers and, That's what I love about what they do, right? Because there's an art and a science, you know, and a lot of artists may run, you know, when math and science come up (laughs) and engineering come up, maybe maybe they run the other way. But, you know, you really have, I'm guessing, right? You know, given your background that you have both that left, right brain thing going on, you have the, the, obviously the artistic creative, you know, juices flowing, but then you have that analytical kind of, you know, rational, you know, side of your brain as well. So, Talk a little bit about your attraction to architecture and how, you know, studying architecture and the analytical side of your brain informs the work you make.
0: That's an interesting question. It's, I got involved in architecture. I did them both simultaneously and double majored. And and also that kind of is how I work. I'm always working on multiple things at at once, just my artwork. There's like eight pieces happening at the same time. Which I'm digressing a little bit there and getting off point. But architecture became something I was interested in out of art classes, art school, because I was interested in kind of exploring this larger than life, if you will, sculpture and how to deal with spaces, you know, and then, yeah, all the analytical engineering and construction and detailing of that too, which. I do use in the things I come up with. Like if I, if I scribble a sketch on a piece of paper, I rarely come up with the ideas beforehand. But if I do, I just have that as a kind of marker and I already know how to build it, even if it just seems illogical and improbable. So that's very helpful to me in my art practice by my experiences in architecture school, just learning more about, the engineering and the detailing of all those things. But I was primarily interested in that from the beginning as just large sculpture. And I do love it. And the thing that is involved with me primarily focusing on art as my career and not architecture directly anymore is that when I am doing an architectural project, I'm always bringing my art into that in some way. And then they kind of look similar. It's more people understand, they see the relationship directly, how the art influences the architecture. And it's never been the other way around, you know, starting with art and getting into architecture. The architecture always kind of looked like the art, but I was primarily focusing on the architecture and exploring ideas that I could. And then at at some point, and this isn't, 100% true, but I just felt a little limited by the creative process and it had to hone in too much on a very specific functional aspect of it. And my mind was more in tune to creating, you know, something. And I then just knew at that point, it's like, well, it had to be art full-time and not architecture full-time. I just felt freer and at limiting. And, you know, and now I'm just kind of I guess blessed or fortunate enough that I can jump back and forth between the two what I learn and appreciate about design and architecture actually does help inform and allow me to create or build amazing things myself. I don't have to hire a consultant, I don't have to talk to anyone else, I can just I can do it right in my own studio and and I love that ability. That that goes back to we were talking before about one of those Tools you have. It's like I'm really fortunate to have that at my disposal. So, and I get kind of nerdy and giddy about it too, which is fun.
1: (laughs) As you should, as you should. So, to the extent that there is a source code, to the extent that there is a DNA genetic code to your work now, you know, all these hours, years, you know, of practice, maybe you wouldn't characterize it like that at all. But to the extent that you can, you know, play along with me here, you know, and to the extent there is like a genetic code or a source code or DNA to your work, to the stories you tell, how would you describe that DNA?
0: Oh, it's a great question. It already shows up a little bit in the other questions that were asked and things we were talking about, but it's about those layers, call it, which specifically goes into my artwork of diversity and experiences. And that's always been there. It allows it to be malleable and shift and change. And it allows other things to come into it by having so many different layers. And I think that in itself is probably the biggest component of that DNA structure. That is, it's just now ingrained. I don't think I can think or look at things differently quite Anymore, although I'm always trying to look at new ways to do it without having all that compile into that system on which I just know so well, you know, so I break it down and make it bend my way, if you will, and then use that to create. And I think that's the main part of it. If that
1: answer, yeah, oh yeah, no. I mean, admittedly, I've, I've only experienced your work online, I haven't been you know up close and personal with it yet. But one of the things that struck me, and I really appreciate you know about your work, at least in my assessment, is this that you know, when you look at it, you know, initially, right, there's obviously a cohesion, you know, to it. I mean, it's a work, you know, composite, right, of ideas and elements and what have you. But then when you look deeper, you see the multi-dimensions, you see the different elements, you see, you know, there's the depth and the richness. It isn't, you know, yes, it's cohesive, but it is, you know, a composite of of different elements, different parts and pieces. And so there's a richness and a real complexity there that maybe, you know, isn't immediately apparent, but when you sit with it, you know, you you start to see, you know, the depth of your work. And I guess that's the architecture part on a certain level, right? Because, You look at a building and it's a coherent, cohesive idea. But then when you break it out, it's like, oh, it's like all these little boxes and all these different lives and stories and problems, you know, that are all very unique. So anyway, for what it's worth, (laughs) my my sense of it, I can't wait to see your work up close and personal. Thanks.
0: It's an assessment in that regards, because that's exactly what it's about. And, And not so much the analogy of architecture, but really anything, not so much a... tinkering kind of mind, but I understand how things are put together. You know, that, that Apple watch has so many micro, you know, kind of components to it to have it look like there's nothing there, but this wonderful kind of streamlined, you know, kind of
1: object. Singular idea. Yeah, right. Exactly.
0: And, and the idea of architecture and all the detailing and lines and components that go into make it this one cohesive thing is very similar to a, a car, you know, or a spacecraft. It's like there's a lot of thought and design and engineering in it. Ultimately, then it all has to bend or change to get it to look the way it either wants to look or is supposed to look, you know. And what I like about what I do in researching and pulling from all these bits and pieces in part and putting it together in the way that you spoke about was that you can see it all at once. It's metaphorically very transparent in that way, but it just looks like one cohesive composition or palette that starts to become very understandable, but yet you can start to read it and learn about it. You're not looking at just the, exoskeletal of an Apple watch. You're now seeing it all pulled apart all at the same time. And you still understand it as a watch, but now you get a little more working sense on how it was put together and the thought process behind there. And I'm very interested in ideas like that.
1: Well, and it's representative of life itself, right? I mean, life is, you know, so complicated and difficult and multi layered and multi dimensional, and it's good, bad, and ugly and everything in between, all that stuff, right? And so to be able to honor life, you know, I guess, you know, in a realistic way with art, of course, I mean, it would have to be, it would have to have those layers and, and those dimensions because. Life is, unfortunately, (laughs) sometimes way more complicated than we would like it to be.
0: It is complex, yeah. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one of the values and roles of art, right, is to help us make sense of it all, right? You know, and so... Just so many questions. You've been so prolific over the years. Here's a funny question for you because we're both from the Midwest, right? I come from a musical family, and you know we were working class. I was the first college-educated kid in my family, you know. But we were musical, right? So my mom was a singer, and you know, my sister is a professional singer now. I don't sing. Don't ask me to sing, Tim. You do not want that. Um, <laughs> not nobody either. wants that. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess music was easy because of course, you know, we, we went to church and, you you know, and my mom, you know, was, you know, the choir director of the church and, you know, and all that stuff. Right. So, however, right. When it came to being an artist and not just visual art, but a musician even. Right. You know, the culture that I grew up in was this idea of like, well, that's not a real job. You know, my dad was an electrician, you know, a builder, he built houses and schools and whatever. And there was this implication, I mean, I always knew that, you know, it seemed like when I was coming up, it felt like art was for the rich kids, you know, with trust funds, you know, kind of a thing. And art wasn't a real job. You know, you're also from the Midwest and your, you know, dad, you mentioned your dad, your grandfather, you know, instilling that work ethic in you. And I, I don't know if they were white collar, blue collar, whatever but what kind of support from your family did you have as you embraced your artistry and being an artist, you know, did you get pushback from your family as like, that's not a real job, but you need to pay the bills. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Talk a little bit about how your family did or didn't support you in your journey as an artist.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of little points to that. We used to too. Like I think we have very similar backgrounds. You know, my mom was a, a piano player. So You know, Mm -hmm. part of it. So I grew up and my dad was a drummer in a a polka band with his uncles and stuff. So I grew up surrounded by creative people. And most of my extended family, too, is somehow involved in that other side of creative thinking. And so it was kind of um, not so much a little bit of a dichotomy in that because, yes, it was – that's not a real job. And the way of thinking in most of the Midwest, I think, and most people in general, I still get it a lot talking to people I meet and and people who are not familiar what it is you do as an artist. They don't know what it means, but they don't understand that. Yeah, that is my career. That is my lifelong discipline and commitment to it. And they don't understand how that translates into Into other things. And so I grew up with both of them, which is a really healthy balance, too, I have to admit. But when you do find yourself not fitting in one side of that and leaning more towards the other, you find yourself in new territory, you know? And it wasn't completely new. So growing up and my dad working and my mom playing the piano, my dad creative, and they had, my dad had his wood shop. My grandfather was an art framer, you know? So I I grew up surrounded by these things. And so, well, this is part of the DNA, right? You know, it wasn't necessarily selected by me, that DNA. It was what I was just born with or born into. So it was a little bit of everything. And I think the greatest gift my parents gave me without is the exposure to anything and everything. You know, even like I grew up as an as an athlete too, you know, which and so I had a good taste of things I can choose from, but that always had to be measured against, well, how are you gonna support yourself? That's, you know, not a career. And because nobody knew there wasn't really that choice or opportunity within that structure of things I was surrounded by. So you were kind of forging new ground. But, you know, we were taken to museums all the time. And, you know, you know, Chicago, it's like a healthy amount of museums and galleries. And so I had exposure to that. That was like the taste test. It's science museums, it's car shows, it's everything else. And so, but they were very supportive. They just wanted myself and my brother just to be happy. And they were behind us in whatever we chose that we wanted to be interested in to do. And so I had never got any kind of resistance in like, this is what I want to do. But there was always right behind that. Well, what are you going to do for money? You know, which is still a question you get asked all the time. Exactly. And so that's kind of like the environment, you know, I kind of grew up with it. a little bit of everything, a lot of respect and hardworking discipline to be the lead in what you choose to do, but a lot of family support. And they, they encouraged it and they appreciate it, even the rest of the extended family. And that's, right. that was a healthy environment to grow up in.
1: Yeah, you know, I ended up studying graphic design at Columbia College and, but that was practical, right? It's like, oh, a graphic designer, like, you know, like, okay, yeah, you can make money doing that. Okay, no problem. You know, you have our blessing, (laughs) you know, but if I'm going to make, you know, stone sculptures, you know, that's a a tougher (laughs) tougher gig. But yeah, no, and it's, you know, it's fascinating, right? Because we also grew up, I'm 53, I don't know how old you are, but you know, we grew up at a time, I think, uh, you know, it was different then too. I mean, I feel like we're living in a creative renaissance now and maybe the general consciousness of the public has risen and has opened up around the value of creativity, art, design, and the technology and the tools, right, have been democratized, the middlemen. The gatekeepers uh, have largely been in some ways removed for good and bad in some ways. But so being an artist now, earning a living as an artist is is just easier today than it was in 1980,
0: right. for example. Well, definitely more opportunities without a doubt, you know, and so that is there, but it's still met with a lot of resistance. I would imagine I, I don't really, maybe it's just my experience It's like, I don't really see any other parent in the country, even now, kids are applying to college and their kid goes, I want to go to art school. And they go, no, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, right, it's, right. it's hard, you know, but, you know, it is. And I think in some ways, growing up in that environment, I mean, probably had a lot to do with me starting to look at architecture as another way you are then conditioned, maybe brainwashed, in finding that practical thing cuz it was painting and drawing was my field of study so try to figure out how you can make money doing that there's no answer there there's there's nothing you can see there that would say oh yeah that's good and so designer architecture became that legitimate you know stereotypical stable profession you could then land into and i think that had a lot to do with it you know and 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 also you know the midwest was filled with great art and great architecture so it was quite easy to be surrounded by examples of both those things to go this is some don't know which one don't know why but it's like yeah there's examples here it can be done
1: yes well and we were so lucky right to be born and raised you know in chicago around chicago because you know if i was born and raised even 10 miles south of where I was, I'd have been a farm kid, you know? And now maybe I would have found my way to the South Shore train station and maybe I would have found my way to downtown Chicago. But because I was born in Gary and I grew up in Portage and the South Shore train station was a bike ride away, You know, I could ditch school, hop the train, you know, go have these grand adventures, you know, in Chicago, let alone, of course, the field trips to Chicago, the the sanctioned, organized uh, field trips, you know, to the Science and Industry Museum, the Field Museum, the Art Museum, the Art Institute. I mean, what a gift, right, we had because those kids that were growing up in central Illinois, central Indiana, you know, central Michigan, you know, it was just harder. It was harder to get to that culture, you know, but... Chicago has such an amazing tradition and it's so diverse and you know whether it's polish culture or whether it's african-american culture blues music you know whatever right jazz you know it's all there and we're super super lucky you know you and I may have lived in Chicago as adults or young adults at the same time I'd say I moved downtown February of 93 three, I guess it was, and moved to LA in October of 01. Were you living in Chicago during those years?
0: No. At that time, I think I was in Milwaukee or just just leaving. But yep, prior to that a little bit, but growing up in Chicago. And then other great examples of this too, just to backtrack a little bit, all these cities, as you know, and not everyone kind of knows this, in the Midwest whether it be Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, have major cities you know, at their center, and they're not the capitals either, you know, just like Los Angeles as opposed to Sacramento, California, two distinctly different-looking, feeling towns. But all these places were then surrounded by farmland. You know, from getting one to the other, from Kansas City to Chicago, you know, it's a lot of farmland in between the two. But then you get there and they're culturally rich environments. And I think what's interesting about that is because they were compact and kind of centralized. So there was a lot of things all happening in each one of those centers that made them very dynamic and culturally rich and quite different. And not so much in the belt of the Midwest, but, you know, Kansas City is different than Chicago, is different than Milwaukee, is different than Minneapolis, and so on and so forth. Different cultural and ethnic heritages that each one of those celebrate a little differently. And I think part of that and being in the Midwest is also part of that because you visited those other cities and you felt how different they were with not much more than a two-hour to a four-hour drive. And I think that that makes it a very unique kind of way. But it's also each one of those is very fundamentally the same as they're all built with that same kind of DNA we've been talking about, where it is a lot of one side, really hard-working, disciplined individuals, blue collar and or white collar. And they do fundamentally work ambitiously hard or by need. And they also play very, very hard, you know, and and that's how I grew up and, you know, now the percentages have changed, you know, and it's more work than play, but the the work now is play too. So, you know, you take control of that a bit on your side.
1: Yeah, that's the calling part, right? Because like, when you're doing what you're meant to be doing, on some level, it's not work at all, right? It's an honor, it's a gift. So it was funny, because when I was dating my wife at the time, you know, she was, uh, you mentioned Sacramento, she grew up in Sacramento, but she lived in LA, she went to UCLA. And when we started dating, she had not really spent much time in Chicago, really. And so she came back, you know, came to visit because I was living there and she was still here. And she was so amazed <laughs> It was funny. She's like, wow. She's like, you can drive like 90 minutes and be in four states, you know, because we would go from like, you know, Michigan to Indiana, to Illinois, into Wisconsin, you know, right along the coast. (laughs) And she said, wow.
0: It's like, yeah, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? My friends and I in school at the time I was in Milwaukee, we would finish the bar time, you know, in Wisconsin and then drive to Chicago to catch three more hours, (laughs) Midwest. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I have those same friends. I have those same friends. Well, so, you know, in terms of your career, right? Like you, you know, are well-established. You've been doing this a long time. So, you know, from a perspective of like making a living, I'm guessing you have a combination of things. I'm guessing you have galleries that you work with. So you're doing one-man shows and, you know, other kinds of exhibitions. I'm guessing you have uh, private collectors. Maybe you're doing commission work as well. sounds like maybe you're even doing some corporate kinds of gigs as well. I don't know. So explain to me sort of your business as an artist, you know, your various uh, revenue streams to the extent that you want to talk about that. I'm just curious, like, in terms of the slices of the pie, what really has worked for you or is working for you? And what's taking up a lot of your time right now in terms of the kinds of work you're making and who you're making it for?
0: Right. yeah. You know, the, the pragmatics of how you make it all work is a challenge. It's always been a challenge. And I don't know if I'm good at it because the economy changes, taste changes, what people are collecting, what they're looking at changes. And so part of that DNA, again, it keeps coming up, which I think is kind of fascinating in this regard in answering this question is like being really diverse and have a bunch of abilities at my disposal helps kind of balance that as best it can. And so, you know, over the years, I focus everything on the art and make sales in various ways and collectors. And all those things are fundamentally 100% necessary, not just for an artist's, I guess, success, if you will. I don't like the word success is a subjective kind of word, but for them to continue to do what they really want to do is just make art. And so you need a lot of things at your disposal, other people, to make that even remotely possible, one, on your career, two, just financially. And so being able to do other things, work as an architect, design a building, work for the people on their buildings, collaborating, allows those things to balance out so it's more manageable over time. And can it also allows you to shift. You know, I've also started, but since the pandemic, so many things have changed. Of course, you had a framing business. I make all my own frames, you know, got that from my grandfather and my dad. So I'm, I'm great in the shop and can make things myself. And the cost of framing things is exorbitant and not really even practical. To some extent. And so, to minimize what I have to give other people to do, I just do it for myself. And then, so I started to do it for my friends. And then I started a small business to do that, which is called Frame. And I make things really well, you know. And I try to, first and foremost, you know, I do it for myself, but I also like to do it for my friends so they can also not have that high cost that they have to go somewhere else for. And three, then I can. For an art collector or a person who buys art or just wants things framed, I can do that as well, you know. And so those things allow me some flexibility to make shifts and do things to support this, which as we all know, you know, artists supports their own business. It's an absurd, (laughs) not really very dysfunctional business plan to do that. You have to be diverse, and you have to do a lot of other things to make it stay affordable.
1: And that speaks to you know the downside maybe or the externality of this digital revolution, the democratization right of tools and technology and being able to market direct to consumer. You know, devils in the details, right? It's like, oh, it's wonderful that artists artist can market their art directly to collectors via their website. Well. Yeah, sure, but then you really have to put that digital marketing hat on and learn SEO best practices and making sure that your mailing list is actually getting opened and you know, newsletters are being opened and blah blah blah. blah. You know, what I mean, and artists don't want to deal with that. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, right? And and who does? I mean, really. But we have atomized the labor force, you know, everybody's a gig worker now on some level or some you know, seemingly, or some independent contract, whatever, or has a business. And you know, listen, when I was sixteen, I couldn't start a business in high school. You know, now sixteen-year-olds can start a business in <laughs> high school. That's a kind million of dollars. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah and, be, and be millionaires. You know, and and that's amazing. I'm not saying that's not amazing, but you then have to learn all these other aspects of running a digital business or whatever. And you know. I'm a Gen or you know, 53, so I was born digital. So if you're born digital, it might come more natural to you, right? Than you know, someone like me who still romanticizes vinyl and cassette tapes or whatever, you know, but the point is, is that that idea that you have to now as an artist wear these different hats. And even if you were just painting, you know, four by six oil paintings and you were, you know, you had a website, you'd still have to embrace SEO and digital marketing. You've got to wear these different hats. And, you know, a lot of artists that are struggling, they have to do that themselves. They have to wear all those hats because they can't afford a publicist. So they can't afford an assistant or whatever. Do you have a team around you of folks that are supporting you in various divisions of labors or are you literally doing everything yourself soup to nuts, whether it's admin or whether it's PR or whether it's marketing?
0: Yeah, it reminds me is like... Snoop Dogg received this big award recently. And in his speech, and you know, when at the end of it, everyone thanks who they'd like to thank, wasn't arrogance, wasn't the audacity of it, but he said, I'd like to thank myself for all the years of struggle and hard work that I did it all myself to get here. And yeah, that is me. Whether or not that's working hard or smart, you know, it takes a lot to do it. And you are wearing, many, many hats. And I think you mentioned it earlier in a different way. And I think what I'm about to say is about both those things, but you're talking about evolution of people and time has evolved and there's no longer one answer to any question, nor is there when you ask someone what they do, is it any just one specific job and a set of tasks that fall conveniently in there. We all now and we've shifted, we changed and kids that are growing up in this culture right now are living it and it's going to come naturally to them the ability to do multiple things at any given time or at the same time. You know, so people have evolved and I think people are they're not just defined in one way. They're they're not just nice or filled with anxiety or hardworking. There are all those things and many more at any given time. And I think that's fascinating, like good for us for evolving as a culture into being more aware of that and what it takes. And it's a good question because a lot of people just don't know it, what it takes to just what it takes to run your own business. You know, starting starting your own business or running your own business. There's a lot of things you do yourself to ensure that it all doesn't collapse on you. You know, and especially being an artist, it's like you are doing a long list of variety of things. One, because you love it. Two, because you know it's out of necessity that you need to at times.
1: Yeah, I mean, we live in a culture that glamorizes owning your own business and. Those of us who have owned our own business understand it ain't that glamorous, (laughs) right? I mean, there are glamorous elements, moments maybe, but generally it's work. That's why they call it work. It's work at the end of the day. And hopefully, you know, you're doing something you really enjoy and love. And But that's also the downside, right, of taking something you love and turning it into a business, right? Like maybe some people, I remember years ago, I went through this phase of doing a lot of like triathlons and marathons and stuff and and I was very excited and I came up with this product idea for runners basically and essentially turned my passion for endurance sports into a business. It ruined me, you know what I mean? It was like, oh man, I really shouldn't have done that. (laughs) You know, I mean it was so anyway, so sometimes you have to be careful, right? To you know, maybe hobbies, maybe passions are best kept on the side as a passion or a hobby. And not turned into a business, but when you do make that decision to earn a living, you know, with your passion or your calling, there are these very unsexy, unglamorous aspects to doing the work and doing the job, and that's just par for the course. I mean, you know, I've talked to artists a lot of times, and you know, they lament being in business or dealing with accounting or taxes or whatever it is, and I'm like, guys nobody enjoys taxes. Nobody, not even the accountants. You know what I mean? Like, like this is just, you know, it's reality, you know, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a real thing. You know, you just got to deal with it. Don't put your head in the sand. But yeah, it is a fascinating time because we get to wear these different hats and, you know, to support, you know, what we're doing and, you know, but having a team, you know, or having some support is good. But yes, I mean, I appreciate what Snoop Dogg said because, that is, if nothing else, you know, to get up every day and be committed to the fight, right? And just, you know, you know, agreeing that you know what this is where I'm going, this is what I'm going to do. Damn the torpedoes, here we go. You know, anyway. So that's hugely inspiring. Okay. So speaking of tools, speaking of tech, speaking of you know running a business. Before we go, I know we're running out of time, but I just uh, I have to ask you a lot of fear and dread and hope and hype around AI these days. What, Tim, is your take on AI to the extent that you've thought about it?
0: Oh, yeah, it's a relevant question. It's a good one. Like, I kind of embrace things that are new. Whether or not my initial reaction is like, oh, this is great or, oh, this is horrible. It's like, you just don't know yet. And so you have to embrace it. You have to read and or experience those things that you don't know much about before you can even pass judgment on it. But like all things currently in this world we're living in are kind of changing because of technology. And you mentioned it before. I mean, it is a creative renaissance, but a renaissance is not defined by one genre or another. It's just a very productive revolutionary change in everything. And you have to embrace that. Jump on the train. Get on there. And so I'm not necessarily saying that I am all AI, let's go. But I am just I'm excited for it, what the highs and lows of that are. As a creative person, it has multiple implications in One I am steadfastly against, the other I'm for. I hope a lot of great ideas and creative things come out of it, and I'm sure it will, and everything will settle and find a balance for it to exist. As an artist, one, you're always somewhat flattered if someone – copies and appropriates your style you know i mean you look at the cubists you look at any art movement it started a change everyone was angry tried to stop it it then just completely revolutionized the way you think learn see things and everyone embraced it everyone tried to copy it and there was no longer one or ten there was hundreds of them doing that and so That's just part of what I do. I hope I'm influencing a lot of people. But do I necessarily feel any kind of kinship or positive cheering on an artificial intelligence that's going to copy and mimic me? Uh, Absolutely not. But I think we as humans, at least now, don't know what the aesthetic principles or what kids growing up are going to like one day as their art, if you will. But we right now as humans know the difference. I would bet anyone 10 times their year's salary that if you walk up to an AI created me and mine, you're going to get it right 100% of the time. And thanks for the money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Please come again. Yes. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, like with anything, right, it's new, it's exciting. People, as I said, there's dread, there's excitement, there's hype, there's hope, whatever. And it's, a you know, on some level, a tool, it's a resource. But I think there's even studies, you know, I was talking to a filmmaker the other day, and he was talking about how I guess he had read a study around, you know, artwork created by AI Versus artwork that was created by humans, and people were able to tell the difference. You know, and I'm not saying it it won't get better or more competitive with time. Maybe it will, but you know, I'm really not going to start to worry, Tim, until AI, you know, grows opposable thumbs and we can't unplug it. You know, right, <laughs> it's right, like, right. guys, guys, we can unplug it. Just relax. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> oh my goodness. Tim, I am so grateful for this time together, man. Thank you for coming in and chopping it up with me and reaching out and offering to come on because that's what we're here for. We're here to help artists tell their stories and promote their work. Before we go, what are you
0: working on right now? What's in the future for the year ahead? I've recently spent a lot of time like during the pandemic and now post-pandemic, if you will. And it's not really about the pandemic, but... It's about time to evaluate and and figure out literally what you want to do next and how you want to do it. So in all things I do, I like to change or evolve and the challenges that go along with that. So if I'm challenged by what I'm doing and it just doesn't come that natural anymore, then I feel like I'm in the right place and I'm excited about that. So I've been working on a new body of work that's getting more dimensional and it's taking the paradigm of the flatness of like collage if you want to I don't call it collage necessarily but that is a more do you refer to it as mixed media what do you refer to it as if not collage you know it's a whole almost different question but it's kind of like saying I'm a painter or a drawer I'm a collage artist I'm, I'm an artist and so I almost kind of in thinking about what I'm doing right now this is part of it. So it becomes a challenging question to do specifically concisely answer. I don't know. I just know that I'm play around with the material of paper, but what I'm trying to do is have this evolution of that and that paradigm shift of what most people think of as collage work. But for me specifically, although I've evolved from that in various series over the years, I'm now at a point where I'm trying not to make a subtle shift, but a very dramatic one. And I've literally spent time, a lot of time ruminating on what that is. Eventually, what that feels like, what that looked like. How do I bring my aesthetic into it? Is it a new aesthetic? And yeah, I'm always searching for that new. And the basic change of it that's fundamentally different, if you look at In very, very early works of mine, even though they were very, very dense, small or large, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper, they were relatively flat, although they were, uh, you can see by layers of thicknesses of paper that there was a change. Now those thicknesses and changes are so dramatic, there are inches between layers and layers that are inches themselves. And there's a movement about it. And so for me, it's becoming a little bit more about space. And I don't know much more of that because I'm still figuring it out as I go, but I'm very excited about the possibility and what I've been creating recently that now I'm just chasing after this thing and it's exciting. You're giddy about it. So it's a good place to be.
1: Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, so you talk about the new body of work. The work that's hanging behind you is that part of the new work?
0: It is. I've got like six or seven pieces up in various stages. The three right behind me are done, but that is it. And most of those come off the wall about four to six inches and spaced in between that. But they're literally made in a thickness on wood panels and otherwise, and thicknesses of paper. But they're also made on all six sides separately. And then those are put together to make up the composition and or concept or subject matter behind each one. So it's completely a different way of making than I've ever made before. And before I used to say, like, I'm making art. Now I really fundamentally believe I'm building art, which is new and exciting in itself. So maybe a little architecture is coming in, you know, or maybe it's just like finding that new change or that new paradigm in a movement that hasn't really changed much since, you know, the 1920s, the 1940s.
1: Well, my friend, you know, this is a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Tim, for coming through. We're going to be sure to post on the show notes and everything. Where people can find you and link to your website, link to your Instagram, that kind of thing. But before we go, tell the audience where they can best find you
0: online. The best way, which I think is like a diary or an analog of what I it's not really an analog, digital social media, is Instagram. Instagram at, at timgrakowski.art or my blog spot. And I say these are the best because it's really updated weekly, even daily about what I've just done, what I'm working on and thinking about. I think that's a good way to know me in general, if not what my art making is up to, because it's like having a conversation. You're there along for the ride. So come along for the ride.
1: I'm on, man. I'm on. Let's go. Let's go.
0: <laughs> I got some beers. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I was just going to say the same thing. It's like, yeah, after all this, because no, I, I appreciate the conversation and the questions. And I always love a good, tough question to get my head around and to stump me. So there are a few great ones like that. But after this, yeah, we're going to have to go have a good Polish beer and a bratwurst and, you know, have another kind of conversation. <laughs>
1: I look forward to it for sure. And I, you know, I will reach out because I want to come do a studio visit at some point uh, as well. And uh, we'll go grab those beers and brats. I look forward to that Uh, or Polish sauce, whatever. You tell me I'm (laughs) going with you. All right, Tim, you have a beautiful day, my friend, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe. So you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Pajot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.